And so let's begin with prayer. Father God, we thank you for your amazing grace, for the joy of the Lord, the power of your word. We thank you that you never leave us nor forsake us, that you've saved us from our sins, you've healed our hearts, and you've reconciled us to to yourself. I pray now, Lord, that you would walk with us and guide us and teach us as we look further into your word, for we do need you. We do need your grace and your help. In Jesus' name, amen. In the early 70s, a psychologist named David Kipnis wanted to know if power really does corrupt people. Uh, So in a series of experiments, Kipnis had subjects assume the role of manager over a group of employees, if you will, in a fictitious work environment. Uh, In some cases, Kipnis gave the managers very little power, and in other cases, uh, the managers had considerable power. They decided whether employees were fired, transferred, or promoted, and the bosses were more, with more power were more likely to be coercive uh, or use strong tactics, such as criticizing employees, making demands, and displaying anger. They were more dismissive of an employee's performance and tended to credit themselves for their employee's success. Powerful bosses were also more likely to keep a psychological distance between themselves and their employees. Kipnis concluded, power inflates our sense of self and makes us less able to emphasize with those lacking power. In another 2012 2012 study, another researcher named Paul Piff had subjects play a two-person game of Monopoly in which power was intentionally skewed. One player was given a wad of cash and used and the use of both die or dice, while the other players received only half the cash and one die. Within minutes, the two the subjects with more cash and dice, the high status players, began acting noticeably different. They hogged the space at the table, made less eye contact, took more liberties, such as moving the low status players, game pieces for them. Uh, They also made more noise when they moved their pieces. Everyone knew the game was rigged. And yet within a few minutes, the roles crystallized and the high-status players uh, started pushing people around and acting like they had real power and status. And the conclusion of both experiments, a little bit of power does corrupt people, ordinary people, when it's just a game, even when it's just a game. (laughs) Well, who are the most powerful people in the world? We'd usually list names like these, Joe Biden, Xi Jinping, maybe Pope Francis, Bill Gates, Mohammed bin Salman Assad, I believe, from Saudi Arabia, and maybe Elon Musk, to name a few. Typically, these are mostly men who have great wealth or leaders of a country. The president of the U.S. is called the leader of the free world and the most powerful man. However, let me ask you this question instead. Who are the least powerful people in the world and who are the ones who have absolutely no power? These people we do not know. I don't think we could even name them. These are people who have no resources to look up to, uh, for themselves. Who would they be? Where would you find these names of the people with the least power? These are most likely children in poor countries living in the streets and abused. It's an elderly woman abandoned, an old man dying in his bed and no one caring for him. It's a single mother with no resources. Who are these people? The powerless people are subjected to tyranny, immorality, 
and violence that's forced upon them. They have no voice, and they don't have the means to fight back. You know, when I think of Christ, when he came to this world, he was one of the powerless people. If you had a choice of how you would enter the world, imagine that. Let's say you had a choice of how you would enter the world. What list would you create, and what qualifications would you want to say, when I enter this world, I will... Would I be born to nobility? Would I be born to wealth? Would I be born to status, to opportunity, to adventure? Which country would I choose? Which family? You know, Christ is the creator of heaven and earth. He's always been with the Father. He's the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is God. He could have come in the world in any number of ways. And when you think of Christ, you see him born to peasant parents to a man or woman who had no earthly wealth, no earthly status, had no political standing. They had no status of fame or recognition. They were, in a sense, nobodies. In the world of who is important, no one of standing or power knew who Mary and Joseph were, and nor did they care who they were. This is what we read in Luke about the birth of Jesus. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Jesus was not expected, not welcomed, and not known. His crib was an animal feeding trough. The world slept while the creator of the universe arrived. Angels had to wake up shepherds and bring them to the stable. In another passage we read in Matthew, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He didn't even have a home. He was an itinerant preacher. He had no home to call. This is my home. In another passage in Luke, it says, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Jesus did not own much. He did not have a lot of earthly possessions. The Lord Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to that which was his own, and his own did not welcome him. He came to the world already rejected. In Isaiah, we read this about Christ, where he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of a parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. He wasn't even good looking. From a worldly standards, he had nothing going for him. But the Lord Jesus was content. He was content because his father loved him. He knew his mission. He knew his calling. He knew his identity. He never needed to question who he was. The father's love and his calling. He never had to question those. He was secure. He was there to simply obey his father. He came here to simply love. The Lord Jesus Christ walked this earth, rejected, despised, but he never hated back. Instead, he loved. He overcame evil with love. He defeated sin because he loved. His love is more powerful than any force on earth, any force in the universe. His love is amazing. I want you to know today, God does love you. God indeed does love you. Now, I know that you've heard that a lot, but it's not that you heard it, but let me ask you, do you believe it? When you hear this, do you say, yeah, I've heard that before, but does he really love me? 
After all that I've done and thought, can he still love me? Can he even forgive me? Or maybe you say, he doesn't need to love me. I'm not in need of his love. I can handle my own problems and solve my own issues. Or others might say, after hearing God does love you, they might say, well, that's nice. I wonder what we should do next. Let's not dismiss God's love. Let us not treat it with a trite attitude. Let us dive into it, delve into it, into the depth of God's love. Let us understand it as best we can. Let us major on his love. Let us let, let his love compel us. Call us and drive us. Let his love fill our hearts. Let us not waver in doubt about his love, but excel in it. Let us shout it from the mountaintops. I was in Smith's this past week. As you only, it's not uncommon, right? You know, and as I saw people walking throughout the store, I wanted to just stop and say, do you know there's a God who loves you? There's a God who loves you. This is what drove Paul to plant churches. This is what compelled him to endure the persecution and false imprisonment and debilitating beatings. He knew God's love was greater than anything he could endure. All he wanted was for people to know God does love them. So know that. Believe it. Hold on to it that God does love you. Number one, the extent of God's love is matchless. Let's look at verses 31 through 34 of chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So in Romans eight twenty six, you have the Holy Spirit interceding for you. Here in verse 34, you have the Christ interceding for you. Pretty beautiful statements there. <laughs> you know, God's love cannot be matched by anything. When you hear the word love, it comes with a different understanding. In the English language, I can use the word love to mean enjoy, right? Like I can say, I love my wife and I love pizza. Hopefully not at the same level. If it, I do, then I need to go see John and Kimberly and deal with some issues. Loving people is not the same as loving your wife. In reality, I'm saying I enjoy eating pizza, right? That's how I'm using it. I enjoy eating pizza. It can be comfort food, but I don't hold pizza at the same level as my wife. But I can use the same word in English, right? That's how we can use that word. We can use that same word when really you're just saying I enjoy it. The word love in English can then be a very broad word which has different levels of meaning. How could we define it biblically, though? Well, we are given a wonderful definition in 1 Corinthians 13, where it says, Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But we also have another definition or another words we see in John 14 where Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus also said in verse chapter 15, 
This is my commandment that you love one another just as I loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Greater love. Jesus demonstrated the greatest love. Love is to mimic Christ. We are to love one another as Christ loved us. Let's do that. And you will literally change this culture. The Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Then in 1 John uh, 4 that was read earlier, God is love. That's the best definition there, right? God loves. God is love. When we read about love in the Bible, we see that that uh, word emerges, sacrifice, giving. God sacrificed for us. God gave to us. God thought of us. God initiated love to us. God does, lo- love does not think of self first, rather thinks of others first. God loves and he does love you. He thinks of you. You are on his mind. Let us now see how Paul described love in these verses here in Romans 8. Number one, God is for you. There you see, what then shall we say these things? If God is for us, who is against us? When he says, what then of all these things? There in verse 31, he says, what, what then shall we say to these things? What, what things are he, is he referring to? He's talking about the words for new, predestined, called, justified, and glorified that you read earlier in 28 and 29. Because God's love, the great love, the extent of his love, he has pursued you and he has saved you. He has loved you and he has healed you. He has declared you righteous through Christ. What shall we say to these things is that God has definitely proven his love for you. He has proven it. This is why we don't ever need to doubt it. Through all that he has done in his foreknowledge, predestination, conforming you to the image of Christ, calling you, justifying you, glorifying you. How can you ever doubt his love? He has definitely proven it to you. Because he has done this, he has definitely shown he does love you. Look at what length he went to save you, to adopt you, to heal you. He's for you. God is definitely for you in what he has done for you. If that is true, then who can truly be against you? We can face difficulties of this evil age. We can face death and persecution for our faith. But can this evil age really take away what God has already accomplished in you through Christ? No. Nothing in this world, this universe, can take away what God has done in you through faith in Christ. Jesus told his disciples, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. God does not desire, he says this in Ezekiel twice, and he says it in John, I have no delight in the death of the wicked, but rather they turn and be saved. God is for us, then you have the victory. You cannot be defeated. God has defeated the enemy. God has defeated sin and death. God has, gets the final say. Because of this, we can then live freely to follow our Lord and live at the calling he has given us with confidence. There doesn't need to be fear for what we're trying to gain, for we have received everything necessary from him already. What God has accomplished cannot be taken away from you. 
God indeed does love you. Number two, God will freely give you all things. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for delivered him over for us all. How will we not also with him freely give us all things? It's kind of a wordy way of saying that. (laughs) Just a beautiful statement, though. God has proven he is for you. Now he has proven he is well not. He has withheld nothing to save you. God sent his son and did not spare his own son. This is an intentional echo uh, to Abraham when God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him. And so Abraham went up to the mountain, took his son, put him on the altar, strapped him down, raised his knife. It's interesting if you read that chapter, by the way. There's so much detail. You know, like he brings the fire, he walks this way, takes his son, he ties him down, he raises. And, every, and the, re, the way you read that is like, please, God, stop me. <laughs> And so finally, he's raising the knife, and God then says, stop, Abraham. And then God said to Abraham, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing, you have not withheld your son, your only son. God stopped Abraham from sacrificing his son. Isaac was saved by divine intervention, and a lamb was provided to take Isaac's place. But there was no other creature or any other person or any other thing that could take the place of Christ. No one can take the place of the Lamb of God. Christ is the one who could drink the dregs of God's wrath, sink into to the depths of sin, and endure the wrath of God. Only he could take the sins of all of us, all of humanity, and that be placed on the soul of Christ, and he would succumb to the wages of sin, and he would die. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made uh, the righteous, might become the righteousness of God. Christ paid the unpayable debt. Christ endured the one thing we deserved. He took away what we deserved on the cross. He took away hell and brought us to him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The greatest gift he gave to you and me because we needed God to give it. He gave us Christ. The cost of this gift is beyond anything we could ever even imagine. It's beyond what we could imagine. It's so extravagant, it cannot be compared. This tells me how impossible it is for you and me to remove any sin in your heart and in my heart. I cannot remove an ounce of sin in my heart. If it costs God this much to get rid of sin, to send Christ to the cross, then what could I possibly do? What could we possibly do in comparison to what Christ has done? Since God has given to us what we could never repay or accomplish, how will he not freely give us all things since he already did? What he has given is found in verse 17. That beautiful phrase there. And if children, heirs also of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Beautiful words. God does indeed love you. Number two, three, God justifies God is for you. God delivered Christ over for you. He, he has willed, held nothing for you. We've heard this phrase before uh, when it says God delivered Christ over for us all. He, we heard that phrase early in Romans. Uh, come with me to chapter 1 in Romans and you'll, uh, verse 24. It says, therefore God gave them over. What did he give them over to? Lust, hearts to impurity. He says that again in 26 and 28, he gave them over. Here it says God gave Christ over. You know, 
who will bring it uh, there. He is uh, delivered. Verse 32, he has delivered him over for us all. That's what he says there. He's delivered us. He's taken us out. In verse 33, uh, he says, well, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is he the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who's also intercedes for us. Look at that. He, who's the one that uh, condemns? Remember eight, chapter 8, verse 1 of Romans. What does that say? There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're not condemned in Christ. Who can condemn you? Let me tell you, there's many people who want to take that place. There's many things that want to take that place to say you are condemned. You're no good. But if you're in Christ, it's all a lie. You are not condemned. Who can condemn you? Nobody can bring a charge against you. Nobody can condemn you. As you have your faith in Christ, he has saved you. Because Christ was delivered, who can deny the identity God has given you? Who can take away what God has accomplished in you through Christ? Who can condemn us? You know, in the book of Zechariah, it's interesting. The high priest Joshua stood before the Lord. Now this picture, Zechariah 3, you have uh, uh, Joshua. He's the high priest, and he's wearing these filthy clothes. Okay, And And these filthy clothes are his sin. And there's Satan standing next to him, accusing him. And what do you think Satan is saying? It doesn't tell us, but I imagine he's saying... You're no good, Joshua. Look at your filthy sins. Look how bad you are. Why should you think that God would want an audience with you? Why do you think God would want you? Why do you think God would love you? Look at how filthy you are. Something like that, he would say. Maybe you've heard those words. But what do we hear in Zechariah? God says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? I rebuke you, Satan. Because this child is mine. Then God saw the filthy clothes and says, remove the filthy garments from him. See, I've taken away your iniquity, taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. And of course, you take a look at Revelation, those robes of righteousness given to us. What is interesting in this passage is that Satan is never mentioned again. If you read Zechariah 3, he has lost his voice. When we read that Christ intercedes for us, this is what he's doing. This child is mine. Hands off. That's what he's saying about you. As you put your faith in Christ, he's saying, this child is mine. Christ is rebuking Satan when we hear him, when we read he's interceding for us, saying, hands off. When, when uh, we can then, uh, when we face the accusations of Satan and we hear that, we can say, I'm bought by the blood of Christ. Leave me alone. The enemy cannot accuse you for you have been justified. No one can condemn you because Christ took your place. He intercedes for us. He speaks for you. He is your voice. You're defended by God. You're loved by God. God does indeed love you. Number two, the strength of God's love cannot be weighed. Let's look at verse 35 through 37. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written... For your sake, we are, being, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Notice that we conquer through his love. 
Remember when I said I was at Smith's and I wanted to stop people and say, hey, I want you to know there's a God who loves you. And maybe there would be some people who would say, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Maybe some would actually get angry at me and say, well, if he loved me, then why did my loved one die? Why did I lose my job? Why did I get sick? Why did my friend betray me? Why did my wife and hus- wife or husband leave me? Very common question, right? If he loves me, then why did this bad stuff happen to me? Very, very common thing. We even probably have said that. Why do bad things happen? How do you answer such an interesting question? Does God hate us because we go through difficult and terrible situations? Does his love somehow lose power and grip and, and not able to be there for you? The direction of this world and the Lord that it follows is sin. And it's strengthened by the lies of the devil. This will produce sickness, conflict, violence, and brokenness. We see that this is what we see in this world. Paul and Galatian, again, called this world or this age an evil age. We live in an evil age. What do you expect from an evil age? Evil age will not produce what is good. It will not pursue what is good. But what we are seeing here is that God's love is not revoked or damaged by the evil of this evil age, but rather God's love overcomes it. God wants to break through the evil of this evil age with his love. He wants to break through it. In Psalm 23, you read that the wonderful phrase, verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Evil is there. It may affect us, but it will not win out. It will not get the final say, because God is with me. God is with you. Now, Paul asked the question, what will separate us from the love of God there in verse uh, 35? And then he lists some things, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril or sword. What does it mean when he lists these situations? It means we may endure some of them or most of them. We may endure some of the things that he's mentioned here. Paul, I think, endured all of them eventually. He had not yet endured the sword. He He was still alive. If we endure those things, does that mean his love is suddenly absent? Does it mean God no longer loves you? An emphatic no. What it does tell us is that God surrounds us when we do endure tribulations of living in this evil age. His love fills us, guides us, and his comforts us. He carries us and holds us in the most desperate of moments, in the difficult days, in the days that you have nothing, and the days where you're overloaded with the weight of problems. God's love is there. It's not gone. The enemy wants to make you think it's gone. Paul then quotes Psalm 42. Since we do not give into the direction and the message of this evil age, we're led away, we're pushed out, rejected, hated, and even killed. It's interesting if you read Psalm 44. It's an interesting psalm because it's about how um, he starts out with, God, you're good, you're wonderful, but why are we going through all these tough things? I mean, where are you, God? It's a, it's a real interesting cry out to God. Like, where are you, God, in the midst of all this? I'm humiliated. I'm mocked. I'm beaten. Where are you? Where are you, God? Where, and then he quotes that statement. For where your sake, we're being put it to death all day long. We're con- considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's how, we, that's how we're living today, Lord. And the weight of those in that struggle. But what we see is that as we go through this evil age, as we feel the weight of all the things that are happening around us in our hearts and our minds and the attacks that may come, we recognize God's love did not disappear. And you must hold on to that. 
you know, today in our schools, some teachers are calling Christian parents Christo-fascists. One teacher in California was fired because she wasn't willing to lie to parents about the immorality the schools were teaching and that district demanded. There is a demand in our culture today to accept the dogma of immorality that is sweeping the country. This dogma is devious, destructive, and dangerous. Does God still love in the midst of all this? Does, God's lo- does he love us uh, as we may face the persecutions that may happen to us? Does he love those who are pursuing the wrong things? Does he love those who are celebrating the wrong decisions and upholding sinful actions? Yes, he does. He still loves them and he wants them to know his son and his grace and the filling of the Holy Spirit. He wants them to give of their lives. It's interesting if you watch that movie, Jesus Revolution, you know, that there's this big movement of of a Christian movement, people being transformed, young people being transformed between 68 and 72 that was, you know, really developed. And what I find interesting about that, that came right after the heels of the sexual revolution where there was this upsurge of immorality. All of a sudden God says, I got something better. (laughs) I got something better. And do you see what's happening today with this upsurge in this LBGTQ of immorality being raised up? All of a sudden there's revivals in these college campuses. God says, I have something better. I got something better than this. I got Christ. God is saying, I reserve for myself 7,000 not bowed their knee to Bell. Regardless of this evil age, God's love will break through. How does he break through this evil age? Through you and me. Through his church. Number one, you are more than a conqueror. That's always been an interesting thing. How can be a more than a conqueror? You know, I'd be settled for conqueror, you know, more than a conqueror. That shows you the power of God's love. God knows the evil you will endure, the struggles and difficulties, but in these things, he has identified you in Christ as a conqueror. You have conquered the evil, even when it seems to have overwhelmed you and overcome you. You are a conqueror because of God's great love. You see his love is his power. His love is his power. When we talk about omnipotence, it is his love. We read the, we're reading this here in this passage. We saw it in 1 Corinthians 13. His love never fails. That's omnipotence. He is all-powerful because his love overcomes. His love does not fail. His love reveals his power. His lo- his, it reveals his knowledge. His, it reveals his actions, words, and promises. It is the good he's causing all things to work together. There is a line that says the only certainty is uncertainty. We live in a very uncertain time. We do live in a world where bad things can happen and do happen. But those bad events are not your identity. God's love lifts you up out of that and carries you. He is the one who walks with you. I walk through the valley of shadow of death. I fear no evil. Why? Because God is with me. That's my identity. His love surrounds me. His love is real. He does love you indeed. Number three, the length of God's love cannot be measured. Let's look at verses 38 and 39. Beautiful verses here. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In this chapter, Paul has proven quite brilliantly and powerfully how much God does love you. I remember watching that movie a long time ago called Bruce Almighty. You ever see that? 
And he's, a, he's just complaining about how all the bad things are happening to him, you know. And then God shows up and gives Bruce some of his power. And what does he do with it? Well, he uses it for himself. He got revenge on people that offended him. He made sure he got the job he wanted, even if it cost someone else their job. And then God showed him and asked, did you help anyone with your power, with my power? Well, I took care of some things for me. <laughs> Uh, watching that movie, I, movie, I remember asking, what would I do if I was given God's power? You know, what would I do? And then I realized he has. He has given me his power. It's his love. He has given it to us. We can bring the change that he wants with his love. It's there. Yeah, it may not be like that. Yeah, you may have to be praying hard, spending days and walk through difficulties. It will overcome. Number one, God's love is the power expressed through you, is his power. When the church throughout history did not operate in God's love, they became cruel and worldly. They sought power. But when the church operated God's love and it exercised his power, they produced wonderful things. It was the church that fought for the lonely and the voiceless. It was the church that built hospitals, orphanages, and schools. It was the church that brought people to Christ, feeding them, healing them, loving them, and changing their lives through Christ. It changed cultures and society. It is his love that will bring about healing to those around us. It is his love that will change the hearts and minds of those who are belligerent and hateful toward God. It is his love that will transform lives. It is his love is what he is doing now. Do we, do we believe that? Do you believe that you and me together can bring the change people need in this town with the love that God has given us? He can Paul ended this chapter convinced. I like this. For I am convinced. He is convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God. He has given us a list even. Death, life, angels, principalities, the present, the future, powers, height, depth, or any created thing. What is he saying? He's saying if you die, even death can't stop God's love for you. When you live, his love is there. Principalities and powers, those are spiritual entities uh, like angels, most likely demons. Look at, in Ephesians 6, it says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The spiritual cosmic entities that are fighting against you with all their powers cannot stop God's love for you. This is why you can look at people who hate you and are filled with hate and say, I love you, for God loves you. You are speaking truth in an evil situation. You know that? Truth trumps evil. There is no force in the universe that can stop God's love. That's why we say it's his power. When Paul said height and death, he's saying you can go anywhere in the universe and you will never get out of my love. You can dig the deepest hole in the earth and you will never go beyond my love. You cannot get away from his love. Since he loves you with an everlasting and undefeated love, then love. Then go do the things that God calls you to do. Trust him. His love won't go away. This reminds me of Christ. Christ knew the Father loved him. He never questioned it. He knew it. 
It didn't matter what Christ endured. His father loved him. So he simply loved. He loved his disciples. He washed their feet. He loved when people's, he loved the people when they spat on him, mocked him, hated him, reviled him, and laughed at him as they crucified him. He said while they were humiliating him, this is what he said as he was dying, as he was being taken, as he was on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's love. Christ loved while facing injustice. He loved while he was crucified. His situation did not separate him from the love of the Father. His identity as son was never taken away. His identity was never threatened. We are loved. Paul is convinced of it. God is certain of it. It cannot be supplanted or denied. It is true. It is the firmest foundation. God does love you. Because of that, you are now free to love. So be free to love. You're free to do as Christ did. When you do people... When you love the way God has filled you up, people, unfortunately, will fight against that. Love anyway. But others will also find freedom and salvation when you show them God's love. You're free to love, for God does love you. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you that you've never stopped loving us. I thank you that you have loved us with a love that cannot be denied. May we know it, believe it, and live in it. In Jesus' name, amen.